Chapter 1. You Can't Frighten the Dead. Untangling the Knot of Hopelessness. The Year, 1985. Age, 30. The Place, Mom's House in the Converted Garage. You've been nipping at my heels my whole life. I can't outrun you anymore. Go ahead. Show me what you've got. Get it over with. Finish me off. In my mind, I was yelling at him at the top of my lungs, but in reality, my pleas were barely audible. There was no need for a gag over my mouth or a twine as a ligature. He knew it, and so did I. I was too exhausted now to move. I was too weak to scream. The object of my disdain was standing strong and steadfast right in front of me, but not close enough for me to take a swing at. Any hope of escape was way out of reach as well. In fact, any hope at all was laughable. He could have leaned in, pressed his nose against mine, and breathed his foul breath down my neck, and I'd let him do it. I'd taken his guff all my life. At one time, I had a strong kick. As a kid, I learned how to punch and to scratch my way out of his filthy hands and got pretty good at ignoring the manic voices in my head. But now, my arms felt like lead. And so did my legs, my heart, my soul, my spirit. I'd never been able to see his face before now, only his handiwork, and my life was riddled with it. Considering everything that led up to this moment, it was no surprise he was here and crystal clear in all his ungodly glory. It made perfect sense. With my mind working in 2020, it was a relief to finally put a face on the one who had caused me so much pain. He was as real as the dirt on the floor and the mold in the air. Questioning his validity was a moot point now. An ugly smirk was stretched across his even uglier face. He was leaning against the far wall as if holding it up. He reeked of self-confidence. His arms were folded Indian-style across his rail-thin chest. His legs were crossed too, with one foot resting on the other one. His body language spoke of sheer satisfaction. My words were feeble, yet somehow sharp and to the point, as if to egg him on. I was not kidding. The whole thing needed to end this night one way or another. I wanted more from this guy than the idle threats I'd put up with forever. I wanted him to make his move. With my head in my hands, I asked myself over and over, How did you get here? How did I get back here to this hellhole of a house, the house I'd grown up in? I was sitting on the edge of the twin bed I'd hidden under as a child and remembered how this rickety thing had once been a friend to me, a safe, dark place of refuge. Whenever my parents went on a full-fledged binge or threw back a couple vodka and tonics, our tiny house backslid into a five-alarm meltdown. I was well-versed at reading everyone like a book, and thank God for long legs that winged me to safety more times than I could count. When the yelling and screaming hit the three-quarter mark, my mother would take off down the hall, headed straight for the coat closet. Well, that's where she kept the implements of torture, an ample supply of unoccupied wire hangers. Her trail of bobbing and weaving and bumping against the walls as she went knocked our family photos right off their nails. One by one, they hit the wood floor and glass shattered everywhere. As each frame broke into a million pieces, It was as if that family member were shouting out mom's exact location to me. They always helped me, letting me know just how much longer I had to find a hiding place. By the time she slammed open the closet door and fished out one of those thin, nasty hangers, 
I was safe and sound, hiding under my dear friend of a twin bed. I'd fling myself under it and lie on my tummy, quiet as a mouse. But with my heart pounding in my ears, it was hard for me to hear where she was. But her shouts of, Michelle, where are you? Always gave her away. And that's when I did all I could do. Pray. I prayed it the same way every single time. God, please don't let anything happen to me. Before I could say amen, a peace covered me like a blanket. This is my first memory of God. Our family didn't go to church, so God came to me. He found me under that bed. He met me there every time. My mother never thought to look under it, not once. Sad to say, I didn't always make it under the bed on time. But when I did, God made me invisible. But what was I thinking? If not for the bruisings, I mean, did I really need to hide? Most times, my mom and dad were so engrossed in their own insanity, there was no need to worry about little old me. I could have plopped myself down on the couch and watched it all play out like a tennis match on Quaaludes, and they would have never noticed me sitting there. But I ran away, afraid of the crossfire. You know, heavy objects were known to fly without warning. Or I ran because I thought I was somehow to blame. Now that I think about it, any little person can get pulled into the line of reasoning without cause or notice, and there would be no correct answers in that interrogation. Since I was the youngest of four girls, I was an easy target. My sisters always fled, except Madeline. If she was around at the time, she protected me. If not, I was left to face the music alone. I was too young to run away from home, so I ran up, up the stairs and straight where God lived, under my unmade bed. But now, at 30 years of age, finding myself back here, sitting on this pea-stained mattress, didn't feel anything like a sanctuary. I was 18 when I left this house for the first time. My newfound faith in Jesus carried me far, far away from here. And since that time, I'd owned my own home a couple of times over, had a booming career as a Christian recording artist, enjoying all the trappings. Just eight miles up the road and two blocks from the Pacific Ocean stood a sweet little cottage with the names Mr. and Mrs. Pilar on the mailbox. Two ancient avocado trees stood strong and tall in our backyard and gave us more guacamole than we could eat. We had friends, too many to count and a faith that seemed so strong and true. So what on earth could have driven me back to this house of shame? My guilt-ridden mother wasn't asking for details yet. She'd been around this road before, welcoming back any one of my three sisters when their lives fell apart. I always thought I was different than they were. I never believed I'd have reason to return to this awful place. But never came a calling. A few nights earlier, I packed a small bag and drove away from my life in Huntington Beach. I watched my pretty little cottage fade into black in the rearview mirror of my late model Volvo. Could I have grabbed a nice hotel room instead? Or better still, could I afford a furnished apartment to think things over? Most certainly. But the deep feeling of shame and grief over what I had done to annihilate my marriage covered me like a shroud, a shroud from head to toe. The sting of disappointment with myself and disappointing God told me I wasn't deserving of anything respectable, any place of comfort. After leaving my husband, going to a place that was clean and nice didn't dawn on me. At the time, I didn't understand why I moved back here. 
But now I realize that in order to pay penance, I marched straight back to the only place I felt I deserved. This, the house I grew up in. The phone was silent. The friends? Gone. The husband? Was angry, reeling out there, covering his tracks against me. It hurt, but I understood. I'd messed up big time. And losing everything, my marriage, my ministry, and every friend, all at once was more than I could take. So earlier in the day, I had purchased an extra-large bottle of sleeping pills, and I was fully ready to swallow every single one of them. The only friend that showed up to my going-away party was this horrid creature, the father of lies, standing in the far corner of my old bedroom. I wasn't asleep. This wasn't a nightmare. It was as if I was dreaming, but wide awake. I'd never been one to drink, (laughs) not with the alcoholic scattered through my family tree. I'd never been one to take pills. I'd never smoked anything. I wasn't attracted to the paranormal, and I didn't have a tendency to blame Satan for my troubles. But I may have underestimated him. I wasn't hallucinating, and I wasn't alone. This cinematic show-off's performance was bigger than life. Mine, anyway. This was personal, and with a specific goal in mind. Yet if any outside observer had stumbled into the room, they would have only seen a girl at the end of a rope, sitting on a bed. But in my mind, it was all loud and clear. Maybe it was just every low-life insecure thought I'd ever had about myself manifesting as a twisted daydream. Or maybe it was that not-flesh-and-blood warfare the Bible tells us we need to fight against every single day. Either way, in this my darkest hour, darkness himself showed up in living, black and hideous. I could feel what he felt. He stood immovable, dressed in his full regalia, something that's both impossible to explain and impossible to forget. The godforsaken creature pointed his long, bony finger at me, began laughing hysterically, and answered my how-did-I-get-here question with, Who did you think you were anyway? He elevated his craggy voice to a shout. You thought you could leave here? He threw his head back and howled at the moon that was just coming out to play. You can't leave this house. You are this house. Everything about it runs through your pathetic little veins. Where's your so-called Jesus now? You traveled the world doing your thing for him. The demon smiled and took a second to reload the hole in his face. You gave him your youth. You gave him your voice. And for what? The demon laughed again and again and taunted. You thought you could dress up like a Christian and convince the world that you're better than all of this? His eyes slowly surveyed the dilapidated filth I inhabited, and then he snapped back at me. You gave your God everything, and now where is he? You're right back where you started, little girl. You didn't get anywhere. You'll never get anywhere. And I believed him. Every single word of it. He was saying everything I'd been thinking. Everything had driven me back to this house. I just sat there, looking down at the cracked linoleum floor, nodding my head over and over, in total agreement with him. I felt like I had a cannonball-sized hole in my soul. I didn't have an ounce of kick left in me. I wasn't the slightest bit afraid of him or the situation. And that's how I knew I was already dead. Under normal circumstances, I would have been scared to death. But you can't frighten the dead. I was too tired to feel 
or fear anything, and too spent to have dreamt this all up. Every failure, every fear of success, every rotten, lonely day I'd ever known paled in comparison to this one. I was so tired of expecting more out of myself than I could deliver. You're right, I told the thing. You're absolutely right. I said it again and again. My voice softened and I asked him. I begged, I pleaded with him. Please, just help me do this. Let's just do this, okay? I so hoped he could come through for me. I'd fought this house my whole life and everything it stood for. I couldn't come back here, yet I hadn't the strength to go anywhere else. The how did I get here question kept racing through my mind. The sun was setting. I didn't kick on the lamp. For the first time in my life, I couldn't hear God's voice. I couldn't feel one ounce of God around me anywhere or inside of me. I'd served him. I'd taught thousands of people about his abilities, his power, his love and forgiveness. But he didn't seem to be anywhere near me now. Only months ago, my life looked like it was all in order. Now, all I could picture were bowling pins standing upright, and then without warning, they were crashing at random as the heavier-than-they-are bowling ball hit them with such force, there was nothing they could do but go flying, hitting walls, hitting each other, and then falling silent. The quiet was like nothing I'd ever heard. For years, I had a schedule that was impossible to meet. Interviews more than I could fill. Even now, there were concert dates on the books I'd have to carry out with people like the Billy Graham Association, Oral Roberts University, and Houston First Baptist Church. Limos and town cars took me everywhere I needed to go. Family and friends helped me do things I couldn't, like laundry and reading boxes of fan mail, even helping me shop for clothes that I would wear to the next event. I ate out 99% of the time and then had to work out at the gym at least four days a week to wear a size four. At five foot nine, that is nothing but unrelenting slavery. I traveled from city to city 200 days a year. Only months before, I'd been on the Grammy Awards telecast in front of millions. Michael Jackson wore a glove on one hand while I was dressed in a classic Halston. Both Annie Lennox and Cindy Lauper told me during the show that I seemed different. I was so thankful that Jesus was there guiding me, shining in me with his gentlemanly fashion. I truly felt called of God to carry his light wherever I went, and I loved doing it. This calling possessed me from the first moment I asked him into my heart in 1973. I worked hard to fulfill every request anyone asked of me. The president of the record label told me I was the hardest working artist he'd ever signed to the label. And yes, I enjoyed the accolades that followed. These pats on the back were perks for a little girl who grew up emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. A girl who, when she found Jesus, found the father she'd never had. What else was there to sing about? What else mattered? What else was more important than Jesus? I had no choice. I wanted no other. I hit the highways and byways at age 19 when contemporary Christian music was but an embryo. I and artists like the second chapter of Acts, Keith Green, and Phil Kagey sang in church basements from the bottom of our hearts. The Maranatha Music Praise albums were just beginning, and little did I know that the solos I sang with braces on my teeth would one day be deemed classics and would outlive me. Amy Grant was still in high school and was listening to the LP Eric Nelson and I recorded for Maranatha called The Misfit. 
We sang for pennies and never, ever thought to ask for more. Lives were being changed, and so were ours. At first, I thought I could keep up the pace. I felt powerful. I felt authentic. But as time passed, I was elevated higher than my roots could steady me. Up, up, up on a spiritual tightrope. I found it difficult to believe my own press because it was larger than life and running out ahead of me. I eventually knew that one good guess to win would blow me right off the rope and I'd topple to the ground. Yet at the same time, I thought I could do anything in Jesus' name. My motto was, He is strong in my weakness. He was so amazing in what He did through me. I just kept praying that my essence could catch up with my public image. But now, sitting on this bed, I couldn't lift my head from my hands. I wondered if the real truth was I'd been running on my own steam the whole time. Running to get away from this house or just running from myself. Was Jesus real? Or did I make him up too? The only logical thing to do was to take my own life. Because there seemed to be nothing of valuable left of me. In self-detonating my marriage, I ruined my reputation as a minister of the gospel. Local stores caught wind of the gossip and pulled my music from their shelves. None of them called me to ask the validity of the rumors. It was just as well they didn't. I wouldn't have had the strength to answer their calls. And the worst part? I had absolutely no idea why I had done what I had done. What a knee-jerk move, I asked myself. I mean, an affair, Michelle. Really? What an idiot. You are beyond disgusting. I thought surely God felt the same way about me. Surely he walked away too, and for the same reasons everyone else did. They tiptoed away to be truthful. They left in disgust. I was not pleasing to them now. I was not productive any longer. I was a liability, a disappointment, an embarrassment. I was disgusted with myself, and I wanted to walk away from me too. Today, I was on the cover of today's Christian Woman magazine. Tomorrow, I'd be known as the Christian singer who copped out and killed herself. In 1 Samuel 5.1, King Saul's public image was more important to him than anything else. He didn't take the time to build the inner strength necessary to lead the people. This deceptive road led him to tragedy, the taking of his own life. We humans are all alike. No matter what century we live in, we tend to gravitate toward shortcuts. Even though I started out serving God with vim and vigor, spiritual sloth had lulled me to sleep and straight back to this horrid house. My pseudo-support system of managers and booking agents and assistants <laughs> was long gone. This demon was the only one managing me now, encouraging me to go ahead and do exactly what King Saul had done. In my mind, my suicide, it was a foregone conclusion. The sun was fully set. The room was pitch black, and the darkness was heavier than anything I'd ever known. My make-it-or-break-it moment was now. There was nothing more to talk about. I lifted my head, stared at the demon, and said, Go ahead. Take me out. Looking at the pills and imagining how they'd feel going down my throat, I thought about my mom and how sad she'd be. With one last glance back in time, I thought of the letters. There had been a dramatic change in the fan mail over the past few months. Instead of writing asking for an autographed photo or a specific recording, now people were expressing concern. Over and over they said things like they were praying for me. Are you all right? That was the question scribed on page after page in countless letters by countless people. 
The letters were frantic in nature, and they apologized for asking such personal questions. Yet their concerns wouldn't let them not ask. The letters made me really nervous. The authors seemed to know more about my future than I did. I rolled the pills around and around in my hand and thought, Did God send his people ahead to fight for me, knowing this night would come? I considered the idea. None of that matters now, Michelle, the enemy pressed. I closed my eyes and placed the first pill in my mouth and then whispered, I don't want this, but there doesn't seem to be any other way. I sat still, stalling, fighting with myself, feeling the air go in and out of my lungs, hearing my heart beat its last beats and the bitter taste of death melting in my mouth. With my eyes clenched shut, I dug deep down inside, hoping to find one more ounce of courage. Then, without warning, someone sat down next to me. The person's depression in the mattress shocked me. I gasped, embarrassed, or the way you'd feel if someone shook you from a deep sleep. Who knows I'm here like this, I thought. Adrenaline shot through me like lightning. Whoever it was sat down so close to me, you couldn't have slid a playing card between us. I opened my eyes. It was Jesus. His hands were clasped together. He was leaning forward, his elbows resting on the tops of his thighs. He wasn't looking at me. His eyes were fixed on the demon still standing across the room. Jesus was as still as a stone. It was as if he was waiting for something. But for what? I didn't have a clue. Silent and fixed. I gazed at him with no desire to look anywhere else. His face was the most beautiful I'd ever seen, yet not by human standards. My face, on the other hand, was burning from too many tears. He straightened up and gently put his arm around my shoulders. I tucked myself under his arms. He was as real and touchable as the vile creature had been. That dark presence, by the way, was long gone. The light sitting beside me had swallowed it up. There was no space left in the room for anything or anyone else but us. How my mind saw all of this so clearly, I can't fully explain. I only know it took place when my life was hanging in the balance, and this is how God fought for me. He allowed me to see a glimpse of how dark darkness is. Then he let me see him, that he was bigger than all my choices. He was bigger than the darkness. I am and forever will be so grateful. I had confessed Jesus as my Savior 13 years earlier. I'm sure that he looked beyond my first prayer to this very moment. He knew that this would be the day I'd need a Savior. As I look back, I see that God, although in total disagreement with my choices, was not ruffled or raffled or repulsed by me because of my choices, any of them. The blood of Jesus was my camouflage to the Father. No other cleansing or covering is an equal advocate. Even while I sat there in dirty hair and mascara running down my cheeks, guilty from head to toe, to him I was his bride, dressed in spotless white. This clear photograph of God's perfect love for me will never fade from my memory or tarnish with time. I spat out the pill that was melting in my mouth. Then I opened the empty bottle and dropped my life back inside the plastic container, one pill at a time. 
God meets people every day who don't have time to spare and no time to pray, no time to make it right, as when driving on a frozen bridge or ice-paved roads at midnight. He wraps his arms around the chest of that doe just as she's ready to leap in front of our cars. He stands with us when we're crumpled next to a hospital bed praying for our loved ones or when we ourselves are on the gurney. And when we stand over a casket we never dreamed we'd stand over, he stands with us. And yet again, the night our spouse leaves, never to return, Jesus is there when we feel him and when we don't. The next thing I saw during my encounter was a ball of string. I looked down in my lap, and there sat a large, very, very tangled ball of tiny threads the size of a basketball. The threads that made the sphere were knotted beyond what anyone would or could untangle. It made me think of the time I found a 14-karat gold chain in the bottom of my jewelry box, tangled beyond its worth, so I threw it away. That's what I wanted to do with my life, but God had much different plans. Jesus looked down at the ball of string, and then he looked at me, and he said, Michelle, give me your life. I smiled a smile soaked in tears. I said, I did that years ago. It didn't work for me. I am so sorry. He repeated himself, Give me your life, Michelle. I want the whole thing. I knew what he was asking for, but he explained it to me anyway. He said, I want every part of you, the parts you've never given me, the parts you've hidden, the ones that were mine that you gave away, and the ones stolen from you. Even the parts you don't know how to give me, I want it all. There are pieces of your life, like the tiny threads in this tangled mass, I've never been allowed to touch, to untangle, to change, to heal. There are crimps buried beneath threads, and because you can't see them, you pretend they don't exist. These knots and snags in your life are holding you back, catching you off guard and keeping you from all I designed you to be. It's time to give me the whole thing, to give me your whole life. Jesus took my hands and placed one on top of the other, underneath the ball of string, and he continued. There is work to be done, and we'll do whatever it takes to release and untangle every knot. He unwrapped me from his loving grasp and placed his hands on top of mine, and he said something I will never forget. I could untangle all of them with one touch, Michelle but you wouldn't know how they got tangled to begin with, and you would tangle them all up again. So I'm asking you to work with me. Let's work together until every last thread is free. There is wisdom, knowledge, and healing at the end of every knot. For the first time in your life, I want you to know the definition of true grace. I'm giving you back the parts of your life that are yours to keep track of, and yet ours to take care of. You'll do your part, and I'll do mine. Some of them are tender threads of your youth, taken from you when you were too weak to hold on to them. Together, we will reclaim and rebuild what is rightfully yours, and it will take a lifetime, Michelle. I sat still and in amazement. Nothing had ever been made so clear to me. It felt so good to feel my life in my hands again, and in his, the life I'd lost somewhere along the way. The life I almost threw away. Yes, it was tangled, but for the very first time, I didn't care about that. I had it back. 
My tangled life was right where it belonged, safe in between God's hands and mine. I asked Jesus, will we be staying here in the house for the rest of my life? He smiled. You don't belong to this house, Michelle. You are not this house. You are mine. In time, you'll walk out of here, never to return. Then we just sat together in quiet. And then he said, always remember, Michelle, always remember this. Always remember us. I said, how can I forget you? You're the only one I know, the only one I have, the only one who came here. Well, you and that thing. Then I cried. Jesus rested his chin on the crown of my head, wrapped his arms around my heaving shoulders, and he let me cry. I cried in thankfulness. I cried in regret. And finally, I cried in sweet relief. There seemed to be a plan, a plan for a future and maybe even for his glory. But the only thing that mattered now was that he was with me and he would stay no matter what. I'd never really known that before now. Maybe all that had happened could somehow matter. Maybe my life could finally stop hurting. When I had no more tears to cry, I collapsed on my pillow and tried to get some sleep. The battle was over. New life could begin. Every single detail of this encounter is as clear in my mind today as when it happened in 1985. Just like those who see Jesus while on operating tables and in ambulances, I saw him. Jesus came to me. He saved my life that night. Was I saved before that time? I thought so. I had spoken to him, lived for him. I sang about him all over the world. But did I really know him? Did I really trust him? And did he know me? This is a question that I wonder about to this day, and I'm not 100% sure of the answer, and thankfully, it no longer matters. But this I know. I needed to know the Jesus who sat beside me on my bed. I needed to be certain he knew me, all of me. The devils know who he is, and they tremble. And this makes me think of the sad story when Jesus said to the person at the threshold of eternity, I never knew you. Depart from me. That person called him Lord and had done miracles in his name. And yet somehow, Jesus didn't know him. I scared myself when I behaved in 1985 as if I never knew Jesus, holding those sleeping pills in the palm of my hand. At best, I was dancing on the edge of grace. And at the worst, he did not know me yet. Although I was doing many things in his name before that time, I don't think I was doing the will of Jesus' Father. When someone like me looks and talks like a Christian, yet does something out of the blue completely off the wall as I did, you have to wonder, have they taken full responsibility for their end of the bargain as a follower of Christ? I wonder what would have happened to me had I swallowed those pills that night. How tragic for me if I'd found myself reasoning with Jesus as a stranger like the man did in the book of Matthew. The security of my relationship with him rests in his promises, but the depth of our relationship rests with me. Spending time with him, getting to know him, enjoying his love, and giving that love away. Serving plays a part, but service is not enough, and I know that now. I lived at my mother's house for the next two years, sleeping like a baby in my twin bed, telling Jesus the truths and watching him reveal how one thread was connected to the next one. Sometimes I just listened and began understanding things about myself and the choices I had made. 
I devoured the Bible with eyes that didn't shy away from the hard truths it wanted to teach me. I pressed into the pain and allowed God's words to do everything they are intended to do. He and I untangled knot after knot. We're still doing that. Some threads are stubborn and complicated, and they don't want to let go. Others give up without a fight, yielding with a gentle tug. And so the sphere of tangled knots gets smaller every day. I no longer pretend to the world that I'm more than I am, because I know who is sitting next to me. And I know that showing people my flaws doesn't in any way dilute or diminish Jesus' beauty and power. My flaws don't change who he is. My flaws don't lessen his love for me. Jesus is the beautiful one, in spite of my knots and for the sake of my knots. And he sees me as beautiful, and so I'm learning to do the same. He didn't see me as broken that night in 1985. He saw me as broken open, and that's the most beautiful broken of all. And ask for my mask, the one I wore trying to be beautiful? (laughs) It's long gone. It shattered into bits at the feet of my Lord that night. I threw it away instead of my life. I knew something had to go, and God knew exactly what it was.